Hi, I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit. Every episode, we explore death, dying, and grief through stories by authors familiar with the topic. Writers are our translators. They take what is inexpressible, impossible to explain, and they translate it into words on a page. Today, I'm talking with American actress and author Patty Davis. She is the daughter of U.S. President Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan. Patty has written many books, including The Long Goodbye and her latest, Floating in the Deep End, How Caregivers Can See Beyond Alzheimer's. It's part guidebook for the often overlooked caregiver and part memoir as Patty shares what it's like being the daughter of a father who is slowly slipping away. This is such a beautiful book, and I'm so grateful to be speaking with Patty today as we dive into the universal struggles of being a caregiver and the surprising gifts that can come from this experience. It's so great to meet you. Thank you. I'm curious what motivated you to write this book. This book sort of came about, I think, really out of a little bit of anger and frustration. Um, 2011, years after my father passed away from Alzheimer's, people were coming up to me and telling me very intimate stories about their own situation with their loved one who had dementia. Um, Sometimes even in the grocery store, if someone recognized me and I knew they were telling me things that they probably weren't even telling friends of theirs. And it started to become clear to me that there wasn't enough care for the caregivers. So I woke up at three o'clock one morning and and thought, I'm going to start a support group. I was sort of off and running then. And after six years, I thought, I'm going to take this to a different phase. I'll write a book and put all this out there. And it is also obviously part memoir, because if I'm giving advice to people, they need to know that where I got that advice and that I kind of know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, you absolutely do. And I and what I love about the book is it creates community around this. Um, it can be so isolating to care for someone who's terminally ill. I mean, people would even say that in the in the group. They'd go, God, I thought I was the only person who felt like this. You know, right. I thought I was the only person going through this. And then they find out the commonality of this of this experience. You know, it's very comforting. Extremely comforting. Um, it is part memoir. Mm-hmm. You say sometimes our homes are built with shadows and how you articulate the transformation in this process of, you know, walking with your father through this illness, it feels like you really mind it for the lessons you learned. Yeah. When, when my father was first diagnosed, I was in a very dark time in my life. I had moved from California across the country to the East Coast where I knew nobody. Um, I'd fled an abusive relationship. I'd sold my house at the bottom of the market, lost pretty much everything. And I didn't know that I wanted to go on. I was tired down to my soul. And I just, I really didn't want to go on. And in the midst of that is when, you know, this diagnosis happened. And then the, and right on the heels of that, it was like, oh, you're, my mother called me and said, well, in an hour, there's going to be a letter <laughs> released to the world. <laughs> That's a lot of, lot of lead notice there. <laughs> yeah. And Liz, this was 1994. We didn't have cell phones. Right. I happened to be home. 
What if I hadn't been home? I thought of that. You would have found would out have with like, everyone else. Really, I would have been like walking around Manhattan and someone would have gone, hey, do you know that your father just released a letter? <laughs> yeah. So it could have been the last straw. It could have pushed me over the edge. Instead, it ended up being sort of a lifeline to me because I thought, well, if he is handling this with the grace that he's handling it with, then I can step up and do the same. And also, I want to show up for this. I thought, I have to get this right. I've gotten so many things wrong in my life. I'm going to get this right. You know, it didn't sort of magically make all my problems go away, of course, but it, it gave me a rope to hang on to. And sort of in that context, also, I was aware that if I was going to show up for this experience, I had to show up as a grown up. I couldn't show, I, you know, I had a very long post adolescence. <laughs> I had hung on to my resentments and, and, you know, been the girl who daddy didn't pay a lot of attention to or enough attention to, which frankly, all of his children felt. Not that he deliberately withheld things. He just, that's who he was. You know? yeah, yeah. So, if, you know, if I show up with that, dragging that along with me, I'm not really showing up. It's just a rerun of what's gone on before. So in other words, I have to grow up. I just mm. have to grow up like now. And that ended up being a big theme in my support group and also in this book. Yeah. When I started my support group, when I started Beyond Alzheimer's, I didn't want to just do a group of saying, okay, when this happens, this was what you should, this is how you get the car keys away from. This is what you do when they go out wandering around. This is what you do when they ask the same question 55 times. That's part of it. I mean, th these tools are part of it. But more importantly, before asking what should I do when asked, who am I right now? Who, what person is coming into this situation within me that's trying to handle it? You know, form will always follow content. Mm -hmm. So if you're still the resentful 17-year-old, you're not going to do very well, right? So, you know, I learned that by going through it. I learned that by going, okay, checking in with myself. And to be honest, it was much easier to do that to... Well, it was never easy, but I mean, it, I, I could get a grasp on it better with my father than with my mother, because my mother was the trigger for everything. So I could feel like a real grown-up be handling things with my father, and then my mother would walk into the room and different movie, right? Different movie. <laughs> different movie. Yeah. I love how you frame it, that it, dementia sort of saved your life in a way. Yeah, it did. It's so encouraging to me, because I also had a father who was gone uh, the majority of my childhood, he was traveling, building a life elsewhere. And I think what dementia did for me was just a continuation of that absence. And mm -hmm. you didn't just accept that, oh, he's, he's absent, he's gone. You showed up for him in a way. Well, I don't believe his soul can have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I don't believe his soul can be sick. And that's why I titled my support group Beyond Alzheimer's, you know. I was always trying to look beyond the disease, not out of denial, not out of saying, oh, it's not so bad or what, you know, but recognizing the severity and the sadness of the disease, recognizing that the disease is in control here. I have no control over it, but also 
that there is beyond that disease, beyond the lack of the absence of cognition, there is a soul in there that knows everything. Yeah. I've heard it saying that, you know, people who get dementia, some get angry and frustrated, some get gentle and quiet. It's almost as if what is essential to you comes forward. And it feels like yes. your father was such a good man. And that mm-hmm. sort of goodness and quietness, and my father as well, a man of integrity, and he's quiet and he's happy and he cracks jokes. Yeah, so this is, this is how I see dementia. I see it as a stripping away to the essential self of that person, the essential self that has evolved in their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have, you know, we don't walk around sort of emotionally naked. I mean, we all have personas and things that we, you know, we sort of paper over in ourselves, not in a bad way, but some people more than others. But when dementia happens, literally all that is stripped away and you are left with the essential core of that person, who they are, who they have chosen to be, who they have grown into, this can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? I had people in my support group say, well, you know what? My father, once he got Alzheimer's, he turned into a racist. Mm-hmm. You know, dementia does not turn you into a racist. Dementia does not turn you into a, an angry, selfish person. It can reveal that you are a racist. It can reveal that you are an angry, selfish person, or it can reveal that you're a really sweet person. I think that's really illuminating and that's really kind of eye-opening to see, oh my God, that's that's who this person always was, yeah. you know? And yeah. maybe you knew that and maybe you didn't, but it's interesting to see that. And my father, yes, was a very sweet, gentle person and remained so. It doesn't mean that there weren't, especially early on, that there weren't times of upset or, you know, or t- even tantrums or something like that. I mean, that goes along with the disease, particularly early on. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, their, their presence, you know. Did you ever think about him as someone else? There was the sort of before dementia and after dementia? Or did you just see his soul all the way through? I kind of saw his soul all the way through. And I think because he was a very sweet, gentle person, that was the continuous thread. Yeah. That makes sense. There's a lot of stress around caregiving. Yeah. How did you take care of yourself as a caregiver, as a daughter, over 10 years? As you titled your other book, The Long Goodbye, it's a very long time. Listen, it is a gift if people have the means to hire, you know, outside help, particularly to the degree that my father had it. That's something to be very, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but you're still a caregiver, you know, you still are emotionally, you are, if you're showing up and you're caring for that person and, and being present for them, you are still a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the real lesson and the real sort of passage was to recognize that this did not define me. I was not just a daughter who was losing her father to Alzheimer's. And I didn't get that at first. You know, at first it was just, it was like, okay, this is the box that's around me and this is who I am. And I was kind of walking around sad most of the time and didn't feel that I deserved to be happy and didn't feel that I deserved to have fun and all of that that many people go through. And I was, you know, I was still living in New York at the time and you know, I wondered why no one wanted to be around me. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't very fun to be around. 
you know, it took me a while to sit there and figure out that sadness is part of this, but my life is part of it too. I can have my life and I can have this other experience that I'm going through. They can both coincide and I don't have to sacrifice having fun with friends or something because I'm going through a sad thing. In fact, I'm going to be better going through this sad thing if I have that balance. Yeah. Do you feel like the depth of your grief expands your ability to feel joy too? Yes. Yeah. I think grief is a, grief is a, is a wider river than people usually think it is. Yes. You know, in the 10 years that my father was ill, I don't remember anyone ever asking me how I was doing. And I just, you know, that was just the norm, I guess, to me. So it never really dawned on me. Oh, I think it dawned on me before before I wrote the book. I think it dawned on me in my support group because um, we would ask, I and my co-facilitator would say to people, you know, when they go, well, how are you doing? And people would look shocked because it was the same thing. No one was asking them how they were doing. People were asking them how their loved one was doing. People were always asking me how my father was doing, mm-hmm. but no one ever asked me how. So we would make, you know, we would obviously make a point of how, well, you know, they would tell us why they were there and their father, their mother, their sibling, their spouse, whoever, and give us all the details. And then we would say, well, how are you doing? And almost across the board, people would be surprised that they were being asked that. It was so unfamiliar. And I think it's for anybody who knows someone who is a caregiver, ask them how they're doing. Yeah. There's a beautiful passage in the section called The World Just Changed. Grief arrives early. Grief constantly asks us to acknowledge it. Most of us want to avoid it for the obvious reason that it hurts. And Alzheimer's offers ample opportunities for avoidance. You can keep yourself so busy with caregiving duties that you have no time to grieve or even think about grief. This is one of the reasons people plunge into hands-on caregiving. Intuitively, they know they won't have time to wrestle with the enormity of their loss. And somewhere in all that busyness is the idea that maybe, if they just ignore grief long enough, it will go away and they'll never have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. This speaks so profoundly to Peaceful Exit because what we're talking about is befriending grief, not avoiding it, and how healthy it is the way you are speaking about befriending grief. Yeah, I think there is, people have this assumption that if I just keep pushing it away, sending it far away, it will disintegrate. And what I've always said to people is that grief is not biodegradable. It will wait for you and it will come find you. And if it has to come find you, it will bring you to your knees until you deal with it. You'll have an accident, you'll have an illness, you'll have something that makes you stand there, sit there, be still, and deal with it. Mm-hmm. So you are better off taking a deep breath and saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to go with it right now, and I will accept wherever it takes me. And it is scary sometimes. You know, you will get through it, you will get to the other side, and you'll be a different person when you get to the other side. I love that. I often wonder, my mother died 20 years ago of cancer. She'd never processed her grief. She lost a child. She lost many things. We never spoke about it. I'm just curious, were you ever able, as a child growing up, did your family ever talk about death or 
Was that a taboo subject? My father talked about death a lot. He talked about heaven a lot, about how beautiful it was. In fact, I remember, I actually said this in my eulogy for my father, told this story that I had, you know, a little aquarium of fish and one of the fish died. And my father um, sat me out in the backyard, like up on this wall, and we dug a little grave for the fish and we, he tied two sticks together and we put it in the little graveside for the fish. And he was talking about how my fish was now like swimming in, in heaven with these beautiful clear waters and there, were no, there weren't any predators there and he could just swim forever and it was so beautiful. He was talking about the sunlight coming through the water and it sounded so beautiful. I felt sorry for the other fish trapped in the aquarium. And I said, well, let's go kill the others. <laughs> right? um, so he was quite brilliant when, uh, you know, as young children, yeah. talking about death. But yet, like when his mother died, we were told about it, but we didn't, I didn't go to the service. I didn't, I don't even know how much of a service there was. It was, you know, it was like that sort of magic thing, you know, when we were yeah. children. And then, and then later on, not so much, you know, I didn't really know how to talk to me when I got older. What did you grieve while he was still alive and, and now following his passing? Is there still, are you still mining that grief? I think in terms of my father, there will always be some grief that follows me because he wasn't an inaccessible father, mm-hmm. particularly as we got older. I think that grief is, you know, that sort of emptiness or that kind of longing lives inside you. Right. But grief over his passing, I think because I did accept it along the way, it was still very wrenching when he died. But, you know, I, I wrote in, in here about the moment of his death and that it was probably the most beautiful experience of my life. He hadn't opened his eyes for, I don't know, days and days. And a moment before he died, he opened his eyes. They were blue again. They hadn't been blue for probably like a year. They kind of faded to this grayish. and they were alert. They were, I mean, he showed up. Mm. He showed up a moment before he died. And it was remarkable. And it was, it was, you know, literally one of the most beautiful experiences I'd ever had. I love what you said about how he looks at your mother and she received his love in that moment. It was really, really beautiful. Yeah. Do you think your mom was afraid of death? Is that why she wasn't present as much? She was making phone calls, that sort of thing, when things were happening? I don't think it was fear. I think that's just, you know, uh, I was there. My brother was there. You know, we're a very fractured family. And I think she just didn't know how to walk into the fold of a family because there had never been the fold of a family. So she was, it, I think it was just habit. Yeah. You know, I think it was just habit. Did that experience with your father change at all your feeling about your own death? Um, well, I think it, it probably it took maybe a little bit of fear out of me, but I think most of us are afraid of death. I mean, it's the unknown. And so I, I can't say that, oh, I have no fear of death anymore. I, that would not be true. 
but I, I think it certainly softens some of it, definitely. I'm going to read this quote from your book. See what comes up for you. Okay. One of the unique aspects of losing a loved one to dementia is that you think during the years of their illness that you are becoming accustomed to their absence. But when they die, you suddenly realize that they were, in fact, taking up a lot of space. I mean, your life kind of, in many ways, revolves around them to one degree or another. When I was running my support group, I never want to tell people what to say or what to think. But I, I did make exceptions in that. And if someone came in and said, well, you know, they're just not there. You know, my mother, my father, my spouse, whoever it is, they're just not there. I would always go, okay, you know what? Hold on. Don't say that. They are there. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're physically there. They're emotionally there. They're not there in the same way that they were before, but they're there. You know, you can't just dismiss a human being or disregard a human being, right? That's what you realize also when they die, even though I've called Alzheimer's a death before dying, and it is in many ways, that person is still there and they still take up a great deal of room in your life. And then suddenly they're not there. Especially if you've chosen to show up for them. And I think that's, um, you know, I think that plays a lot into how you handle your grief. Because I think the longer the disease goes on, the assumption is, well, I've been grieving all this time. I'm not going to have any more grief left when they die. And that's a natural thing to think. It just doesn't work like that. Right. Because it's a different phase of grief. Mm-hmm. What's your hope for this book? I just, I want, you know, I want people to have this as their handbook and dog ear it and mark it up. I hope this is like one of those books, you know, that people just keep there and then go, oh, you know, I remember something in there and go back and and look it up, you know. Well, I believe it's timeless. Yeah. I learned so much from this conversation, having my own father slipping away. And I just wanted to really thank you, Patty, for writing this book, for sure. documenting your experience so that those of us who are going through it now can really learn from you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Peaceful Exit. You can learn more about this podcast and my online course at my website peacefulexit.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. You can rate and review this show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Large Media. You can find them at larjmedia.com. Special thanks to Ricardo Russell for the original music throughout this podcast. More of his music can be found on Bandcamp. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit.